In the book of Matthew, John the Baptist bursts on the scene out of nowhere. The unusual circumstances regarding his birth and early childhood are given to us in the book of Luke. However, I'm not going to be looking at that material this morning. Rather, I'm just going to follow what is given to us in the book of Matthew. And as he bursts on the scene, we see that his ministry is one primarily of preaching and then baptizing. The key verse is Matthew 3, verse 2, which tells us his message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this morning we want to look at the lessons that we can learn from the preaching and ministry of John the Baptist. First, we look at the preaching of John the Baptist, and in particular, the time of his preaching. John began ministering while Jesus was still living at home. Matthew 3, verse 1. Now, in those days, in those days, and uh, those days refer back to chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. And he, that is Joseph, arose and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. This is when they had gone to the land of Egypt, fleeing from Herod's seeking to kill all the children two years of age and under. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee and came and resided in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. So those days are the days in which Jesus is living in Nazareth. A lot of time has certainly passed since Joseph and his family first settled in Nazareth. John the Baptist is now grown, and we know from the scriptures that he is six months older than Jesus. So obviously Jesus is now grown, and we're going to see in just a few verses that Jesus begins his public ministry. But I believe that the point of the passage saying that in those days, referring to when Jesus was at Nazareth, is to point out that Jesus's, that, excuse me, that John's ministry predated that of Jesus. Before Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist was already preaching the gospel of repentance, saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. And preparing that way, he did so in a very literal fashion. The first public appearance of Jesus is going to be at his baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. So it's in those days, prior to the public ministry of Jesus, that John the Baptist is preaching and baptizing. The place of his preaching is given to us in verse 1. Preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He began his preaching in the desert of Judea, a vaguely defined area including the lower Jordan Valley, north of the Dead Sea, and the country immediately west of the Dead Sea. It is hot. 
and apart from the Jordan itself, largely arid, arid, though not totally unpopulated. What is odd is that John the Baptist's preaching did not concentrate in the large cities. If he wanted to reach a multitude, one would think that he would go to the more populated areas, and most notably Jerusalem. But he did not. While I said that the wilderness area did not have a small, uh, did have a small population, the text emphasizes the people had to go out in the wilderness to hear him. Notice verse 5. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around Jordan. If you wanted to hear John the Baptist, you had to go to him. He wasn't coming to you. And he didn't go to the large cities. He was in the wilderness. And people flocked from the cities into the wilderness to hear John the Baptist. The content of his preaching is given to us at the end of verse 2. It says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in that very brief and simple message, there are two elements or thrusts. The first was the need to repent. Repent. Repent was the first word describing both the ministry of John and Jesus himself. John came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's important, for the preaching of John the Baptist was not different from the preaching of Jesus. Because there are those that would want to put the, the preaching of, of, of John the Baptist in a totally different era and setting and uh, purpose and, and ministry. But the words of John the Baptist are the very words that Jesus spoke as well. To repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance in scripture refers to a decision to turn one from one's sins because of an inward mind change which involves how we look at God as well as how we look at sin. D.A. Carson says this, and I quote, What is meant, however, is not a merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance, but rather a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turning around involving mind and action and including overtones of grief, forsaking of sin, and turning to God, which results in fruit in keeping with repentance. End quote. He came preaching the need to repent, to change, to change their mind, their thinking about God and themselves that would result in a change of life. The second element of John's preaching was that the kingdom of God was close. Verse 2 Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The predominant emphasis in the Old Testament when it speaks of the kingdom is that of 
the reigning aspect of the king. Thus, it is dynamic in force. Christ's reign, his kingship, is just around the corner. Some older commentators make a distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. I, with uh, most of the modern commentators, think that that is a mistake, that they are synonymous, both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Only Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. It appears 32 times in 31 verses and nowhere else in the entire New Testament. The only person that uses that terminology, kingdom of heaven, is Matthew. Everyone else uses kingdom of God. The term kingdom of God is employed 66 times in 65 verses in the New Testament. Matthew uses the term kingdom of God four times. So you can see the disproportionate emphasis uh, in uh, Matthew between the terminology kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. Why would Matthew use the terminology kingdom of heaven as opposed to kingdom of God? There are two thoughts. One is for the Jewish audience that for them to use the, the kingdom of, of heaven is the same to be speaking of the kingdom of God. They talk about God as being in heaven. Uh, there might be some merit to that, but since none of the others do, I don't know that that's entirely it. Um, rather, I tend to think because the kingdom of heaven emphasizes a latitude that is important in the gospel of Matthew. If you're in my Sunday school class this morning, I spoke on how important the kingdom was in New Testament theology. And you certainly saw that in the book of Matthew in particular. But Matthew emphasizes that the kingdom of heaven is simultaneously the kingdom of the father and the kingdom of the son. One might think of the kingdom of God as being God the Father's kingdom. And Matthew emphasizes very profoundly that the kingdom is a kingdom which belongs to both Father and Son. It has tremendously Christological implications and overtones, emphasizing both the deity and the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I say that because in the book of Matthew, Jesus referred to the kingdom as his father's kingdom. Matthew 26, 29. He said to his disciples, but I say unto you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. But Jesus did not hesitate one iota in speaking not only of his father's kingdom, but his own kingdom. Matthew sixteen twenty eight. Truly, truly, I say to you that there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man 
coming in his kingdom. Referring to Jesus in his role as son of man, uh, ruling in his kingdom. Now, I'm going to be saying much more about that uh, tonight and especially next Sunday night. So if you want to hear more about that next Sunday night, I'm going to be talking a lot more. But here, just introducing that thought that the kingdom of heaven provides that latitude of terminology to emphasize the fact that we're talking about a kingdom which is both the father's kingdom and the son's kingdom. And that kingdom was near. In uh, the uh, Sunday school class again this morning, uh, sorry if you weren't there, but uh, we spent time looking at there are three aspects to the kingdom in the scripture. There is the eternal aspect in which God rules over all things, always has, always will. Uh, God is the sovereign God. And uh, his kingdom is his creation. The second aspect of the kingdom is a present aspect of the kingdom. uh, That uh, Jesus rules in the hearts of his people. And the third aspect is a future kingdom in which Christ will reign here on earth. So, the, the kingdom that is being referred to here is twofold. It is the kingdom that came with Jesus and his preaching and his miracles to demonstrate that he has authority to rule over all things. He has the authority to rule over all things. The miracles that Jesus performed were, in fact, according to the book of John, signs. Uh, John 20 says, and many other signs did Jesus do, which are not recorded in this book. They they are miracles, but they they were intended to, to both illustrate and authenticate the teaching of Jesus, thus a sign, that he was king over all things. And that it demonstrated a future reality. So that when Jesus healed the blind and caused the crippled to walk, for example, had greater significance than just for that individual who now gained sight and could now walk. But it was intended to be a sign. A sign of a future reality. A time in which there's going to be no more death, no more crying, no more tears, no more sorrow. There isn't going to be any more disease. That will all be done away with. Jesus healed to demonstrate and to authenticate the reality of that future great truth. Jesus caused the winds uh, to stop blowing and the sea to stop raging. And the disciples marveled at what kind of authority does this man have that even even the Winds in the sea obey him. Well, because he's king. There is the kingdom that was established at Christ's death and resurrection. In Ephesians 1, 21 and 22, which he he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things in subjection to his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So Christ is king now. But there will become a time in the future 
in which that kingdom is going to be manifested in a fuller, deeper, and even in a physical presence of Jesus on this earth. But in our passage, the element that is associated with this coming kingdom is primarily a future element. And that is that when this kingdom is established, there is going to be judgment. There's going to be a judgment. In order to get rid of sin and evil, there's got to be a judgment. And so, it is in light of that coming judgment that John the Baptist calls on the people to repent. Repent, why? Because the kingdom is coming. And that's going to mean judgment. And you don't want to experience judgment. Hence the words, to flee the wrath to come. To flee the wrath to come. They were to repent. Of what? Of failure to make God the king of their lives. Thus, in verse 6, they were to confess their sins. The ultimate reality of our sinfulness. Confession literally means to say the same thing. And we are to say the same thing about sin that God says about sin. Not that it's a mistake. Not that it is simply wrongdoing. But it is, in fact, rebellion against God. It is, in fact, a selfishness. It is, in fact, not just sins of omission. Excuse me, commission, but sins of omission. It's a failure to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our might. And a failure to love our brother as ourselves. That's the ultimate aspect of our sinfulness. And so we're to come and confess the reality of that and the sinfulness of that, of failing to give God his rightful place. And thus, they are to have a desire to forsake their sins. Notice verse 8. Therefore bring fruit, uh, excuse me, therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. May the change of life that is manifest in this confessing of sins and in this desire for repentance come to fruition. May it be seen. May the sincerity be demonstrated by the power of God. Next, the prophetic fulfillment of John's preaching. John was the one who the Old Testament prophesied would come. Verse 3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet. John fulfilled the prophecy with regard to, interestingly enough, even the place of his preaching. Namely, the wilderness. Notice verse 3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. The wilderness. So there, even that simple aspect of the ministry of John the Baptist, of ministering in the wilderness as opposed to Jerusalem and Judea, is in fact a fulfillment of prophecy. This is the region. This is the locale. This is the place where John the Baptist was to be preaching. Most likely, that was symbolic of the spiritual condition that Israel was in. They were barren. They were lost. And his preaching in the wilderness kind of is a metaphor, if you will, of that lost and barren condition that Israel was in. They needed a savior. 
John fulfilled the prophecy in regard to the purpose of his preaching. Namely, to prepare people to embrace Christ. Notice the end of verse 3. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. He came to prepare people to embrace Jesus Christ. How do you do that? How do you do that? Well, for John the Baptist, it was by first preaching a message of repentance. A lot of people don't know why they need a Savior. Because they don't understand what it means to be lost. They don't know what they need a Savior from. And I would submit to you, it is much more than just hell, although it includes that, to be sure. But, but sin is a condition that we are in that is miserable, that is hard, that dishonors and does not bring glory to God. And there needs to be a mindset of repentance, of wanting to be freed from our sin. Not just its consequences, not just its penalty, not included, but sin itself. To be brought under the authority of Jesus Christ, to recognize his kingship in our hearts and in our lives. So, practically speaking, Dwight L. Moody, one of the famous evangelists in uh, our nation's history, not too long ago, had a normative practice. And that was that most of Dwight L. Moody's campaigns were two-week campaigns. He would come into a town and uh, preach for two weeks. And invariably, the first week in Dwight L. Moody's preaching was the Ten Commandments. Before he ever presented Christ, he taught on the Ten Commandments as a way of preparing people to embrace the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To know their need of a Savior. People need to know their lostness. People need to know the need of repentance. Of change that takes place in our lives. And the gospel message is filled with hope and joy. Because the leper cannot change his spots. We can't just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We can't bring about the necessary changes that God requires, for he requires absolute holiness, nor are we able to bring about even the desires of our own heart. People want to be free of their, their sin. They're tired of the misery and the heartache that they're bringing to themselves and others. And they resolve to... Do differently to make these resolutions that they're going to be a different kind of person only to find themselves falling back into the same old habits and the same old ways of life. It is a recognition once and for all of our helplessness. We need a savior. We need a deliverer, even from our own selves, even from our own sinful nature. We need someone to deliver us. And that's the gospel message, that the, the king 
is coming. Thirdly, the person, oh, excuse me, secondly, the person of John the Baptist. John's unusual dress reflected the significance of his ministry. Verse 4. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, that seems a bit odd to us. And now it doesn't seem odd to us, it would have seemed odd to them. Because it's odd. Okay? And Jesus makes reference to this fact. In Matthew 11, verse 7. As they were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. He said, why did you go out to see John the Baptist? Did you go out to see John the Baptist because he looked great? Had nice soft clothes? Uh, Jesus said, those, those kind of people live in, live in palaces. Those are kings. That's not how John the Baptist looked. There was nothing about the way he dressed that would have drawn people to him in a positive sense. But why did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will repair your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Why did you go out to him? Because he was a prophet. It was his message, not his look. It was not his presentation. It was his message that you embraced. And that is significant. I submit to you there's also another significance. And that is that the dress most likely serves to point to the connection that John had to Elijah. John the Baptist is dressed like Elijah dressed. There is in the book of 2 Kings a circumstance, a situation that is recorded concerning Ahaziah, who was king. And Ahaziah fell through a lattice in his palace and was injured. So King Ahaziah sent messengers to inquire of a foreign god whether or not he would get better. But the messengers were intercepted by Elijah. And Elijah tells them to return and give a message to the king. Which they do. They return and give a message to the king, but they didn't know who it was that told them. They didn't know who this prophet was. Elijah didn't tell them his name. And so the king inquires of them and says this. 2 Kings 1.7 He said to them, What kind of man was he who came up to meet you and speak these words to you? And they answered him, He was a hairy man with a leather girdle about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. It's Elijah. It's Elijah. Elijah was known by his dress. Nobody else dressed like Elijah. All he had to do was describe him. And he said, that's Elijah. Kind of makes me think of Paul Topping in his hat. You know? 
That identifies Paul Topping, the guy with the hat. Well, for Elijah, it was the guy with the with a hairy coat and with the, the belt around it, leather belt around him. That's exactly the way that John the Baptist dressed. And I would say to you, no mere coincidence. Jesus revealed to the disciples that John the Baptist fulfills, or at least partially fulfills, the prophecy regarding Elijah in Matthew 17:10 and following. His disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is said to have ministered in the spirit and power of Elijah. Luke 1.17 And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now that's striking. Why? Because this one is going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. In the Old Testament, if you will remember, Elisha is the uh, disciple of Elijah. Elijah is the mentor, if you will, of Elisha. And Elisha asks of Elijah that he would be given a double portion of Elijah's spirit. A double portion of Elijah's spirit. And most commentators point out that Elijah performed seven recorded miracles in the Bible. And Elisha recorded 14 miracles in the Bible. Thus, a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. But what is striking here is that it says that Elijah, excuse me, that John the Baptist is going to go out in the spirit and power of Elijah. You know how many miracles that John the Baptist performed? Zero. Zero. Not a single miracle for a prophet. For a prophet that was greater than all the other prophets. Zero miracles. But yet he's ministering in the power of Elijah. How can that be? I submit to you the answer is that his message of repentance is received in a most remarkable way. Elijah is known for that great event on the uh, uh, top of the mount uh, when uh, he's calling down fire from heaven. Remember, with all the prophets of Baal gathered around, and uh, he is calling the people to repentance. In that same spirit, he's John the Baptist is calling people to repent, and he was having a remarkable effect. Notice verse five. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, people were flocking 
to him. Even though his clothes were a put off, and even though the location was a put off, Jesus said, why would you go out there? Because there was a prophet there. One greater than any prophet was before. And you see, there were many who came and repented and accepted the preaching and teaching of John the Baptist. Which brings us then to this third point, and that is John the Baptist's pejorative probing in his preaching. How do you keep the peace going? Pejorative preaching, probing preaching. Pejorative probing preaching. Meaning that he gave the people a hard time. Notice, John is hard on the Pharisees and Sadducees, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Now I've got to deal with a little grammatical issue in the text. And that is, were the Pharisees and Sadducees, in fact, coming to be baptized or to observe and critique John's baptism? If you have an NAS, it reads, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them. If you have the NIV, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing. Also, the ESV goes along with the NIV in referring to the place where he was baptizing. So there's two different thoughts. And uh, grammatically, you can't answer the question. You can translate it either way, four or two. So, were these scribes and Pharisees coming, in fact, to be baptized themselves? And he says to them, you brood of vipers, why are you doing this? Or were they, were they coming to simply observe and criticize and find fault with what John the Baptist is doing? Uh, you're not going to answer the question grammatically. So, the only thing we have to go on is contextually. And I would point out to you verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming, and I think the translation ought to be for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Now notice this next phrase, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. They were purporting, they were presenting themselves as ones who were fleeing from God's wrath. Thus, not to criticize, but to be baptized. They were coming. And he said, who warned you? Who told you that you needed to flee from God's wrath? Because that was so out of keeping of the mind of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were steeped in self-righteousness. They thought they were good enough. So, John the Baptist says, who told you to flee? Why are you here? Unfortunately, the Pharisees were accustomed to doing religious activities for the wrong reasons. Matthew 6, 2. When therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. Jesus warns against the scribes and Pharisees who prayed in public just to gain favor with people. And John the Baptist is warning these scribes and Pharisees that that's all you're doing. 
If the only reason you're out here is to look good to the masses, because everybody else is out here, and you're just going through the motions, well, you've got a rude awakening. This isn't going to be of any value to you. This isn't going to be of any benefit to you. You need to bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Jesus, in fact, uses the baptism of John against the Pharisees and Sadducees. In Matthew 21, 23, when he, that is Jesus, came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing too, which if you tell me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the one thing he said. The baptism of John. Was that? Was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will then say, Then why didn't you believe him? If we say that he was from God, and he's pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, then he's going to say, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they all hold John to be a prophet. If we discredit John's ministry, then we're in trouble because everybody thinks he's a prophet. And we're going to have our head handed to us. So they say, we don't know. And then Jesus said, well, then you do I tell you by what authority I do these things. He, he called their hand. You see, he called their bluff. And so John the Baptist is warning these Pharisees, if you are here, you brood of vipers, and you're really fleeing the wrath to come, all right, but if not, you are in trouble. So, our text says, verse 8, Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Therefore, change your lifestyle. Change your message. Change your way in which you're going to ultimately respond to Jesus. They're not to trust in their goodness, but to be sincere in their confession of sin. Verse 9, And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. The baptism of John does not save. It points to a Savior. Matthew 3.10 And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize with water for for repentance. But he was coming after me is mightier than I. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I baptize with water. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He actually brings about regeneration. He actually brings about salvation. I can't do that. He says, I baptize with water. It's symbolic of cleansing. He baptizes with, a, with fire that purges sin, that changes life, that brings about transformation. I can't do that. John Baptist is saying, everything I do is symbolic. Everything he does is real. And God will make a distinction between those who are sincere and those who are not. Verse 12. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
Jesus knows the difference, he says, to those who are gathering. He knows those that are sincere and those who are not. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized by me. John says he knows the heart. He's going to come. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize with fire. Those that are his, he will gather into his barn. Those who are not, are going to be cast out in unquenchable fire. Application. It's really rather simple. John came preaching repentance. The need to confess sins and embrace Jesus Christ. John preached because the kingdom of heaven was coming. It was at hand. Judgment was soon to take place. I simply say to you this morning, have you repented? Have you come to a place where you have confessed your sins? You have acknowledged your sinfulness? And understand what that means in its totality. To have failed to recognize the rightful place that Jesus Christ needs to occupy in your heart and life. He is the King. Thus, He is to rule over you. Have you submitted your life to Jesus Christ? Or are you living a life of rebellion? Are you saying no to God and yes to self? It's as simple as that. Simple as that. Are you ready to say yes to God and ask for forgiveness for your sins? If you're ready and you're sincere, you'll be saved. And God will do a work at your heart and God will bring about incredible changes in your heart and mind. Because He gives us His Spirit. And He purifies our hearts by that Spirit. It's the same message we we preach today. The need to repent, to confess our sins, to embrace Jesus Christ, because judgment is coming. So once again, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? From sin. Not just the consequences but the very power of sin that it has over you. You want God to deliver you from your sins. Don't trust. Don't trust in mere ritual. Don't say to yourself, I was baptized as an infant. Don't even say to yourself, I was baptized as an adult. The question is, what about the heart? Was there sincere belief? Well, an infant can't believe. And there's no guarantee as an adult that it was sincere, that it was genuine. It's not about ritual. As he says to the Pharisees, it's not about being the son of Abraham. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about tradition. It's not about did you grow up in this church. It's not about have you always carried a Bible. Or even have you always prayed. The question is, Have you come to a place in which you acknowledge that the one that was consciously directing your life was God? That you have actively sought the understanding of the Scriptures to govern your actions and you have lived a life in keeping with what the Scripture instructed you to. Not perfectly by any means, But that was the goal. That was the desire. To obey Christ. If that's not your testimony, then this morning I say to you, repent. Ask God for forgiveness. And pray that God would change your heart, your mind, your life by that Holy Spirit 
that is given unto those that truly believe. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we pray for any here this morning that perhaps do not know you as their Lord and Savior, that this might be the very day that they confess their sins, they acknowledge their need of the Savior. Maybe there is one here this morning that this message has spoken to you in a powerful way and you are ready to say, I need a Savior, I need forgiveness, I need to repent. I have really not been living my life for Jesus Christ and recognizing his authority as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If that's your desire this morning to confess your sins and to embrace Jesus Christ, would you just quickly raise your hand so I can see that, acknowledge it. I'm not going to ask you to stand or anything like that, but uh, please, would you just raise your hand? I'm going to pray for you, not by name, but uh, uh, in the message. Anyone at all, quickly, uh, raise that hand so... I can see it. All right. Thank you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We thank you for those that have prepared our hearts and minds to receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for loved ones. Thank you for tracts. Thank you for a myriad of ways in which we came to recognize our need, our sinfulness. Uh, Lord, thank you for a spirit of repentance that you have granted unto us, that has caused us to see the need to uh, cry out for a deliverer from our, of our sins. Oh Lord, thank you for the reality that baptism symbolizes. Thank you for the change that is able to take place by the work of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, uh, today we give ourselves anew and afresh to you, thanking you for your grace and mercy to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.